Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Not the kind of animal we wanted to put into a farrowing house because she would be more likely to crush her litter and, and not effectively, comfortably fit in a stall. We started a transition away from the back fat because as we looked at that female and, and really spent some time with her, the reality was that she was a leaner derived female and yet we were treating her like she was more fat than lean. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about NutriQuest. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by servitude and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technologies and efficient operation. Today, our guest is Dr. Laura Greiner from Iowa State University, and she'll talk about self-feeding and research, uh, do's and don'ts. How are you, Dr. Greiner? Good. How are you, Marcio? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks uh, for your time. Uh, a lot of people asked ask for, for you to be invited to the, to the podcast, and I'm, I'm very happy for that because it's something that uh, you know the story I think a lot of people don't know, but my first day in the U.S. Uh, when I met you, uh, barely sp spoke any English. Uh, the only thing I could do is like smile and uh, couldn't speak much. So uh, yeah, I appreciate, I always appreciative about the, you take me down there for an internship at Carthage and uh, was was great times, a lot of hard work and uh, learned a lot. Yes, yes, I have some great memories too. I still have the Brazil jersey you gave me the first day we met. And um, I always tell my students the story of when you got to spend the night at the South Farm and the oh. adventures you had with yeah. the snow. So, yeah, many, many great memories there. Yes, I, I have a video about that. So, uh, so every few years I watch that video and remember that too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, so appreciate that. And uh, first question we always uh, like to ask is uh, for you to tell us about yourself, uh, for those that don't know you, and, and also up to recent times. Sure, happy to do so. Uh, so I grew up in central Illinois, and my family is still there today. Uh, my family has been farming for a few generations, where we've mainly done row crops of corn and beans. Uh, when I was younger, my family, um, along with, so my dad, along with his brother and his father, um, had a hog operation. So we actually had outdoor hogs with the A-frames, oh, wow. and then we had a small indoor nursery for our commercial operation. 
Uh, and then we also raised show hogs. So we raised purebred land race and Poland chinas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so as I, uh, as I grew up um, with the hog crisis in the 80s and, and some of the farming issues that were going on then, uh, my dad transitioned over into cattle. So he did a lot with feeder cattle while my uncle kept um, the pig operation going. So um, our family diversified a little bit. And then I actually had a lot of poultry as well for 4-H projects. So I just I had a huge love for animals and came out to Iowa State, uh, wanted to do the pre-veterinary route when I came out to Iowa State. Uh, got into the program here, and like a lot of students do, you realize there's more to your career opportunities than just being a veterinarian if, if you know, vet school isn't really what you believe is, is what you want to do with your life. And so um, got involved in swine nutrition under Dr. Tim Staley for my master's and PhD program. So I spent a lot of time looking at disease and nutritional aspects, so how we feed pigs to improve a pig's response to disease for both my master's and my PhD. And while looking at some things for my PhD on antimicrobial peptides, I had a phone call from a faculty member at the University of Iowa who was looking at similar things uh, except for in humans. So I did about three years doing a postdoc there at University of Iowa in human medicine, um, spending a lot of time on immunology and the interactions of host and and bacteria. So how do bacteria evade our host immune cells and so forth. After that, our family relocated down to Carthage, Illinois. And at that time, Dr. Connor was looking for someone part-time mm-hmm. to help oversee the, the newly developed research company called Carthage Innovative Sow Solutions at the time. Um, so I joined that with Gary Ali and Dr. Aaron Gaines, as well as Dr. Connor. And worked part-time for about a year and then uh, transitioned into a full-time employee to oversee that company. And then that company went from about 112 sows, where we just did lactation research only, to uh, in about a 10 years time frame, um, having 4,800 wean-to-finish spaces, plus about 224 lactation spaces for research, along with about you know, 4,000 sows that could be on gestation research. And then we had a a private BSL-2 facility so we could do disease evaluations. Um, The team was was very active. We had about 10 people total on um, the CISS team, which is, of course, Marcio, where you came in and you met our team at at one point during your your lifetime here in in the U.S. And... um, we did research on everything, mainly nutrition, but uh, being in a veterinary company, we spent a lot of time looking at health. And of course, being involved with the production company, we had a lot of production questions and genetic uh, questions as well. And so uh, the research portfolio there is, is very diverse. Um, so I spent about 13 years there. On the off times during my time there at Carthage, I actually was a nutrition director as well for Carthage. So I worked with a lot of our local producers and farmers and just, you know, whether it was diet formulation or helping them troubleshoot a problem on their farms, um, that was really kind of my my consulting piece, if you will, while I was there at Carthage. About a year and a half ago now, just over a year, I transitioned over to Iowa State. 
So at Iowa State now, I currently a 50% teaching appointment with 25% research and 25% extension. So I work with about 100 to 130 students every semester in class and then have a few graduate students um, where we're conducting research and, and working with some production companies here in Iowa. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, Marcio. Is there, do you have any questions? It's quite a journey. Well, one question. It is a journey. I always tell my students life is a journey and you never know where you're headed. So oh, just... I, I, can, I can attest to that. <laughs> uh, well, one question is uh, if you have any idea how many studies you'll be involved so far. Oh, that's a good question. I did the count before I left Carthage, and I've honestly forgotten it. We averaged about 35 trials a year, and I was there for 13 years. So, so you can kind of do the math. Amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, Over I can't even tell you how many pigs we interacted with. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, so with all that uh, experience, Dr. Greiner, um, you've seen you know genetic lines evolve over time. Um, what are some changes that that you've uh, realized um, from uh, you know when when the genetics meet the nutrition? What what's been those changes from a feeding standpoint? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, so I can use just my own experience when we look at the last fifteen years of swine production. Uh, when I first started at Carthage, we were dealing with a commercial sow line that was uh, still relatively fat. And so we spent a lot of time talking about millimeters of back fat. We wanting to be at 18 millimeters of back fat on our, our females um, and trying to get to that target. But what we noticed within the first five years of, of me being at Carthage was that as we tried to achieve that back fat parameter, we actually created sows that were very large, well over 300 kilos um, in size and just not the kind of animal we wanted to put into a farrowing house because she would be more likely to crush her litter and, and not effectively comfortably fit in a stall. We started to transition away from the back fat because as we looked at that female and, and really spent some time with her, the reality was that she was a leaner derived female and yet we were treating her like she was more fat than lean. And so uh, as we pulled that away, we've slowly brought our, um, our weight targets down in our females. And so today, you know, our average female is only about 227 kilos. So definitely a, a smaller size female than what we were used to working with 15 years ago. So our feeding strategies are a little bit different, particularly in gestation. We're just, we're not as aggressive in, in feeding these females because we don't have to have that kind of back fat on them to get them to perform well. Some of the other things I think we've seen too is that um, once that sow comes into farrowing again, because she's changed her, her phenotypic behavior, or not behavior, but phenotypic pattern, she's she's more driven to eat and this isn't the case for all genetics so you, i still put my disclaimer you have to understand your genetic line because again some genetic companies still keep a lot of maternal background in their in their commercial female but some of our commercial lines out there are very lean and they're very hungry 
And we used to be very slow in bringing them up on feet, right? It would take seven days or so to allow the sow to eat what she wants. And we're finding now that we can feed these sows full feed as soon as they come into the lactation rooms before they even farrow. And we don't have to stop full feeding them until they're weaned. You know, so amazing differences than where we originally started uh, with even 15 years ago. Um, but again, you know, like I said, there are still there are still genetic lines where we do have to be a little bit more guarded, right. bring them up a little bit slower. But we definitely don't have to wait seven days to get them up on feed. So some of our mindset on how we just physically present that feed to the animal has changed quite a bit in 15 years. Yeah, that's that's very interesting um, on that uh, full feeding right after farrowing and, and some some folks even today uh, right when they're transfer right to the to the farrowing house they're full feeding uh, some of those especially if the herd's not fat uh, so that's interesting um, any other general comments on the genetic side of things that comes comes to mind. Well, I mean, I think it's important, Marcio, that we certainly recognize that that these sows are are what we would almost affirm, um, define as hyperprolific, right? Our sows are producing significantly higher number of pigs born alive during their farrowing than what they were 15 years ago. And nutritionally, I think many of us are, are constantly asking the question, how do we feed them in gestation? What should that look like to support fetal growth? And then how do we get the feed into that sow after she's farrowed, right? For many years, we thought it was normal for a sow to lose weight during the, her farrowing and lactation process. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we've really seen is with good management, that sow can at least maintain her weight, mm -hmm. if not gain a little weight during lactation. Um, now, of course, that's not common with summer heat, but in the winter or the cooler months, that's something we have seen. Um, but still, when we have 14, 15 piglets on that sow, and we figure she needs a half a kilo per piglet, um, plus about two kilos for her own body, that's a large amount of feed we're trying to get her to eat every day just to maintain her weight. Right. Interesting. Well, that, that is very interesting. How about uh, the guild side of things, guild development? Any um, thoughts there on guild feeding? Yes, I think that's a great question. So on guilt development itself, that's actually an area that that I'm working on now. Uh, I have a graduate student that's just getting ready to start looking at some different types of fat in, in guilt development diets to see if we can help improve um, joint conditions so that we can improve longevity in herds. Uh, we're certainly starting to talk a little bit about how fast our gilts are growing in guilt development and do we need to maybe do something different with their feeding programs? Uh, we're certainly concerned about longevity with our sow herds, and we know that fast-growing animals can have uh, a higher predisposition to things such as lameness. Mm -hmm. And so uh, trying to figure her out is something that, that I think is really important. Many of us would say, oh, it's a guilt. We, we feed her like we would uh, you know, a typical commercial hog, just give it a little bit more calcium and phosphorus mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit more vitamin along the way and and she'll be fine. Um, but we fail to recognize that generally in our guilt developers, we're giving a lot of vaccines and 
you know, we're getting her ready to express puberty and we're introducing her to a bore. And depending on the system, we might also be doing some training for gestation units. And all of those things put a different stress on a female compared to just being a commercial hog. So um, I believe there's a lot of work left to do in the guilt developer. I don't believe we should treat her like a commercial market hog. Right. But what that looks like right now, I can't give you exact numbers. Certainly, we know when we think about a guilt in gestation and lactation, um, that guilt, she's going to need a more nutrient-dense type of feed to support her her own physical growth, if she is still growing, as well as her litter. You know, we've, we've talked in the past, and I know you've had some podcasts on, you know, bump feeding and do we do it or do we not do it? And we've ever seen a response to bump feeding is with gilts and their the birth weight of their litters. And so, again, trying to understand that female and, and what we're asking her to do is something that, while I think we all agree is important, I don't think we quite have enough information on her yet to say this is how we need to handle her. It's uh, definitely an area that needs quite a bit more research. Um, one thing that I always try to advocate on the guilt side is I don't think there's any production system today where they would have, or even a university, a folk with a guilt uh, nutrition program, you know, how can I say this, uh, just a line of research folks on guilds, uh, you know, and same setup we'd have for commercial research, uh, the normal one, but you'd flow guilds through that and you'd have a pipeline of guild research that uh, we don't have today, you know, something I've been trying to advocate, someone needs to create that somewhere. Yes, yeah, I agree. And that's something that we're trying to do here. While, while we may use a commercial gene, uh, phenotype or genotype um, for our guilt model, we're trying to set something up like this with this graduate student just to see if we can start to create something that would mimic guilt development. Um, but get some continuous flow so that we can do multiple trials to, to try to start to tease out some of these questions. Very nice. Um, besides uh, guilt, what uh, do you think are key areas of research in general today on the sow feeding side? We could spend all day probably talking about areas. Uh, one of the, the challenges I see is that we continue to see uh, new challenges showing up in our sow systems. So, uh, for example, the prolapses that we've heard more about in the U.S. industry in the last five years. Now, you know, I'm starting to hear some rumblings of, of other issues associated with low milk production. And so it, there's some questions out there. Is there something that we're not quite doing right to get the female set up long term? So, again, that's part of what we're doing here is starting back in the guilt developer to try to look at some of these questions to see if there's something we can do differently to try to minimize maybe some of the things that we're seeing on the back end. It's likely that, you know, we've changed the genetics of our female. And, and just like what we learned with gestation and lactation programs, Maybe we need to change the way we're raising her as a guilt to get her to be a longer productive female. As far as just general questions, you know, we we have a, I would say, a decent handle on the amino acid requirements of a female in gestation and lactation. But with the diversity of the genetic lines that we see out there, I think those need to be a little bit better formed. So... 
Um, I think we need to kind of go through and look at each genetic base and say, are there truly differences in the lysine requirements between one line or another, or are they more just associated with feed intake? And so grams per day are the same, but you know the percent within the diet is going to be altered based on feed intake. Um, so I don't think that we have a very good handle today on the different genetic lines and their nutritional needs specifically. I think we tend to put all sows in a basket and that's really not um, gonna be conducive. So uh, those would be my two key areas that I think we need to look at from, from a general research perspective. That makes total sense. Um, yeah, no, not, not much study on the side-by-side uh, comparisons there on, on different genetics uh, on the amino acid side. That makes sense. Um, you've done hundreds of, of studies, uh, Dr. Greiner. What uh, would be some of the lessons learned um, or comments general, you know, when setting up a study on the, when you're doing applied cell research, what would be your, your highlights there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I jotted a few down before our visit today. You know, some of the key challenges that that I see when I'm reviewing research or when people are talking to me about the research that they've conducted is that we uh, tend to forget the number of animals that we really need for sow research. It's, it's very easy today. It's, it can be quite easy to do a study with 50 sows in a treatment. But when we start talking about subsequent total born numbers, if we want to look at that type of performance metric, we're talking hundreds of sows per treatment, you know, anywhere from you know, 200 to 500 sows per treatment. And so we still need large amounts of replication. Uh, one of the, the tricks with this, though, is that um, sometimes groups, in order to get this done, will put one treatment on one farm and another treatment on another farm and believe that everything is very similar in terms of genetics and farm SOPs and diets and so forth. And I can tell you from my experience that, you know, a simple thing as the breeding manager going on vacation for a week can greatly influence your outcomes of your studies. And so anytime we have side-by-side studies, we have to be very careful because unless we're documenting, you know, if a farm manager has changed or a breeding manager has changed and we're putting that into our data set, we could very easily miss uh, something that could be skewing our data one way or another. So getting farms where we can do side-by-side research is really what's key for SAR research. Um, we don't have a lot of facilities that can do that. Even if we just hand feed in lactation or gestation, just having access to, to bins with food drops so that we can put that feed in carts and, and take it out to the animals and give it to them at the right treatment will be quite critical. So, you know, that's something that as an industry, I feel like we're missing when we start talking about sow research is how do we do nutrition studies effectively to minimize that variation. And certainly when we think about anytime we're measuring biological factors to understand how the biology works. Uh, we don't wanna be talking about a product that we feed a week before a sow farrows and talk about how it improved total born when we know total born was established within the first 30 days of pregnancy. 
And we don't want to talk about reducing proving mortality on a product that was given for five days at the end of lactation when 75% of your pre-wean occurs within the first three days of life. So um, really understanding those metrics and then making sure we account for all of it. So if we're looking at litter growth rates, for example, we should have feed intake data for each sow that we have on study. Now there are ways around that, of course, if we have large replication for sows, which we can do, but it can be a challenge to do sow research in that way because it is very time consuming. Uh, so dedicating people to sow research is also something that I'm a big advocate of. It's great to want to do the research, but to have somebody whose focus is every day to make sure those litters are being fed what they need to be fed and pigs aren't getting moved, um, that's really critical because the farm staff, they have enough other things to do besides uh, trying to make sure that the right dietary treatment gets delivered to the right animal. So those are those are kind of my big challenges and, and pet peeves, if you will, about how to, to run sour research. <laughs> wow. Lots of golden nuggets. Uh, yeah. Right there. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's very cool. Well, one thing that comes to mind sometimes on that topic is, um, you know, like you said, we need 200 to 500 per treatment. Uh, but also, uh, a few years ago, I was thinking about even gestation versus lactation is a little different as well between them because gestation, we are, it's a fixed amount of feed, way less variation, right? Lactation right. with the full feeding, is, it gets pretty wild. I mean, I remember you and I, we've, we've done a lot of studies together. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and I remember seeing the data that the variation is so big in lactation that sometimes I, I, I even question like, you know, I remember one day asking a researcher, I was like, if I need a thousand cells per treatment, it's okay, but I need to know that because we are doing all these studies and sometimes it's very hard to find something on some of the lactation uh, research. That's right. And then the other comment I have on the topic is uh, winning weight, right? Uh, let's say if we have a half a kilogram uh, difference at winning, and uh, that's interesting, uh, but at the same time, if depending how that was created, if it was created through nutrition or management versus genetically, let's call that, um, mm -hmm. how much of that actually remains, right, until the end of the uh, finishing period is also something that sometimes come up. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of those little factors, right, that we just, because it's such a moving target and there's so many interactions that occur in those short 21 days of lactation, it, it makes our research very difficult and, and challenged to interpret. Lots of fun. Yes. <laughs> Good job, security, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't it time your PERS protocol evolved? Elanco's Prevacent PERS is safe and effective offering at least 26 weeks of immunity duration against the respiratory form of PERS. As the first and only on-market USDA-licensed vaccine containing a contemporary Lineage 1 field strain, Prevacent is a contemporary solution. Connect with your veterinarian or an Elan co-representative to understand how Prevacent can fit your operation. Visit PrevacentPRRS.us to learn more. Prevacent. It's time for a new perspective. It is time to our famous three. 
Well, so now we get to the part of the episode, Dr. Greiner, where we ask the same questions, uh, uh, the same three questions to every guest. And uh, the first one is, uh, what's your favorite pig-related book or resource? Yeah, so my favorite pig book is actually called The Lactating Sow. I find a lot of really good information in that. And of course, because the sow is is the animal that I enjoy the most, um, I find myself going back to that piece of information just to go through some of the simple biology that's occurring within the animal. Or even, um, you know, we're working on some colostrum work right now. So just going back to immune cell transfers and, and antibodies and all of that information in there, it's... Uh, I find that piece to be very, um, very informational. Very nice. Uh, how about a, a book in general or, or any resource? Yeah, I was joking. I don't, <laughs> I don't really get much time to, to pleasure read right now. Um, when I, when I do, I like just to read general fiction. Um, but most of the time I'm, I'm spending reading on, on scientific articles. And so, um, unfortunately, that's where, where most of my time is right now, but maybe in a few years, I'll get to do some more enjoyable reading. Well, now I'm curious, what type of uh, fiction would you read? You know, you have to remember, I have children in the house, so uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, see. Yeah. I think we just finished the Harry Potter series again for oh, I don't know that's what, cool. what time, so... Um, you know, maybe it's more just the family reading, but that wow. that would be more of what we do in our house. Yes. <laughs> oh, that, that's very cool. Very cool. Yes. I'm actually just watching uh, the Star Wars movies for the first time now with some oh, friends. Oh, are so, you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I have a couple of children that love Star Wars, including a bigger one in my house as well. So <laughs> very nice. <laughs> Makes yeah. for fun entertainment. That's cool. Well, and then the last one is, uh, in your opinion, what do you think sets apart uh, successful swine professionals from those who are not? That's a great question. I think a successful swine uh, nutritionist is somebody who spends the time um, interacting with people in the industry, not being afraid to ask others what they see and what they're hearing, and being willing to listen to that conversation and take in the information and, and try to tease it apart. You know, we, we can effectively work on an island. Um, as we were just talking about, different genetics behave differently. Um, certainly, everybody's experiencing different things. Different producers have, you know, different targets or goals or outcomes compared to others. And to be a really well-rounded uh, effective individual in the industry. To me, it's having that network, talking to people, finding out what they're seeing in the industry and and internalizing that information and, and being able to use the parts that you can use, but yet keep the other parts in the background in case you talk to somebody else who maybe is looking for that information. Um, so always, always keeping those communication lines open is critical. Very nice. Yeah, the, the best... Uh... Someone said uh, the best uh, resource is being resourceful. Yes. Uh, so just being able to pick up the phone and call people is, is amazing. And um, yeah, I appreciate so much your thoughts there, Dr. Greiner, uh, in your time today. Yeah, thank you as well, Marcio. I'm glad to be a part of your program. Hey, everyone. 
we just crossed 15,000 downloads of our episodes and I wanted to say thank you. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we even gonna have some controversial topics of the global swine industry. So you can leverage that knowledge in your day today. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our waitlist. We'll talk soon.